Hello everyone and welcome to Surveillance Report 55, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report recaps some of the most notable events in the last week, including some thoughts on the ExpressVPN sale, some sci-fi level research that I'm excited to share, a couple of small privacy wins in the politics section, and more. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry is away doing top secret things for tech lore, but we'll be back soon, I promise. This week's promo spot, I'm gonna do something a little bit different. We normally talk about the ways that you can support us financially, but there's another way you can support us that will actually help you out as well, and that is by joining our communities. So TechLore has Matrix and Discord, I have Matrix, and the advantage for you if you join these communities is that a lot of the time, the same articles that we talk about in here get brought up in those communities. So you get to learn about all of this stuff in real time as it's happening. You get to hear other people's opinions and their insight into these stories. And you also get to chat with like-minded people. You get to share your privacy techniques. You get to learn from other people what works and doesn't work. You can learn about new tools and services. You can usually find someone who's using something you're considering and they can give you their experiences with it. All kinds of great reasons to join our communities. So. If you have not yet done so, I highly encourage that. This week, we do not have a lot of data breaches, thankfully, but we do still have a couple. We're gonna start off with a wearable and fitness tracking record data breach. This belongs to a company called Get Health, which is a New York-based, quote, unified solution to access health and wellness data from hundreds of wearables, medical devices, and apps, unquote. They pull from devices like Fitbit, Misfit Wearables, Microsoft Band, Stava, and Google Fit. The data that was disclosed includes names, dates of birth, height, weight, gender, GPS logs, and more. The vast majority of this data seems to have come specifically from Fitbit and Apple's HealthKit from users all over the world. So while it did mostly target those two services, it wasn't limited to a specific area. Some of the data also hinted at behind the scenes stuff like network operations and configurations, which of course now means that potential malicious actors have some insight into the backbone of these services and that opens the door for more potential abuse of data. So hopefully they will get the unsecured database fixed and, you know, any other configuration misconfigurations. Anonymous leaks gigabytes of data from the alt-web host Epic. Many websites that are popular with the alt-right, like Parler, Gab, and 8coon, these are websites that obviously have been kicked off of other hosting providers and Epic is a home for them. Anonymous claims to have stolen and released over, quote, a decade's worth of data, unquote, totaling 180 gigabytes. It includes customer records, emails between employees and the CEO, and the goal seems to be to dox the supporters and members of these organizations. Our last data breach is a little bit different than usual, but I, I thought this belonged in this section. It says, Alexa leaks your private wish list. And this is a story from someone who has an Alexa, and he talks about how his wife noticed that it was blinking like it had a notification. So she told it, you know, gave it whatever the keywords were to say the notifications. And it said, hey, this item on your wish list is on sale, now it's this much. And according to the author, that was the item he was gonna get her for her birthday. So it kind of ruined the surprise. The author did some digging, went through the settings, found out that uh, the, the wish list so he keeps a wish list for his wife for possible birthday gifts you know whenever he sees something that he's like oh she might like that he'll add it to the wish list and it's a private wish list so he went looking through the settings to see if there was a way to disable notifications for private wish lists and there's not he can either have all notifications for all of his wish lists or none which is obviously a pretty crappy binary in this case fortunately the damage was minimal he's like ah you know there's other gifts i can just pick something else it was it was just a surprise it wasn't a big deal but in the past things like this have ruined big deals like facebook used to have this thing called beacon 
that ruined somebody's engagement. Uh, basically, he was looking at engagement rings, and for some reason, Facebook announced it to all of his friends on Facebook, like, hey, so-and-so's looking at engagement rings, and it's like, thanks, bro. This could also out someone who's LGBTQ. Like, you know, what if they purchase a book about, uh, you know, sexual psychology or something like that, and they're, you know, haven't quite figured this stuff out. So the main reason I wanted to share this is because it's worth knowing that not all data breaches are always the result of hackers or malicious insiders. I, I should say malicious attackers or malicious insiders. Sometimes it's the features that are built built in that just don't work the way they should or the way, uh, you know, somebody didn't think it through and now the damage is done. So yeah, be aware of that sometimes. That's one of many reasons that we encourage you to give these services as little information as possible. All right, having said that, let's move into companies. We're going to start off with Google with some good news, actually. Billions of Android devices will reset risky app permissions. So in Android 11, Google has this new feature called permission auto reset. Of course, it's not enabled by default, but when you enable it, every few weeks, your app permissions will reset, which means every few weeks when you open an app, it will ask you all over again, hey, do you want to give this permission to your camera roll, your contacts, your microphone, whatever the case may be. And personally, I think this is really cool because first of all, I think every few weeks is far enough that it's not going to annoy the crap out of people. But it's often enough that you're constantly getting a refresh on if you want these apps to have that. You know, for example, maybe you gave an app permission to your photo album to upload a single photo and then forgot to restrict permission again afterwards. So every few weeks, it's going to remind you and you can go, oh, no, I don't I don't want it to have that permission. I think it's super, super cool. So starting in December, they will be rolling this out as far back as Android 6.0. And this rollout will continue until the first half of 2022, so probably around June or July. If you are an Android user, I highly encourage you to turn this on when you, uh, whenever you have it, whether you have it already or whether you will be getting it soon. Our next story comes from Apple, who patched the forced entry zero day exploited by Pegasus spyware. This was an emergency patch that rolled out earlier this week, uh, iOS and iPad OS 14.8. This was after a new Pegasus vulnerability was discovered by Citizen Lab. They reported it to Apple. Apple patched it. So the important takeaway behind this story is to stay up to date, especially these emergency patches, which we'll talk about that a little bit more later. When these roll out, there's usually a good reason. So we are well beyond the days when updates would break things. Not saying that they never do, but they don't as much as they used to. So generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of reason to not update your things because more often than not, they come with critical security updates. Stay up to date. Our next story is also about Apple. This is just a real quick one. Last week, a number of organizations and individuals organized protests the day before iOS 13 launched in order to protest Apple's CSAM scanning techniques, which we've been talking about a lot over the last few weeks. And uh, these organizations included EFF, Fight for the Future, and Calix Institute. These protests took place at various Apple Store locations all around the country, and that's pretty much it. It's really good to see that there are companies, even though Apple has kind of taken a step back and they're like, oh, okay, we're going to hold off on rolling this out because we want to make sure we do it right. It's really good to see that these organizations are not backing down. They're, they're keeping up the pressure, and they're trying to keep this in the headlines to force Apple to just abandon it altogether. So that's great. Our next story comes from Facebook, who sent flawed data to misinformation researchers. The article says that three years ago, Facebook began sharing user data with researchers so that they could help track and fight misinformation. It unfortunately has now come to light that Facebook has not been sharing all of the data that they originally promised they would, which means that a lot of this research is either coming to flawed conclusions or uh, is having to redo their methodology. Basically, a lot of the research that was done is no longer valid because the data was flawed, and now they're having to 
you know, some of it, it's setting the work back months. In some cases, it's just scrapped altogether. It's completely useless. I think the moral here is that the jury is now out again on the impact of misinformation. And uh, it, it does kind of highlight the importance of having good data. Like, I know this isn't really a statistics podcast, but, you know, it's, it's important to have your facts right and have your information so that you come to the right conclusion. And that can go for, you know, like vetting a, a messenger or an email service. That, that can apply to just about anything, really. Let's move on to Microsoft, who is getting rid of passwords. Microsoft is trying really, really hard to take us into a passwordless future, and their newest push is bringing it to the consumer level. So this can include things like biometrics, which is not really new. I had a laptop in 2012 that had a thumbprint. It was awesome. You can link your account to an authenticator app, and this can also extend to Microsoft apps on mobile, like Android and iOS. For those of you wondering why getting rid of passwords actually seems like a good idea. The reason is because most people default to crappy passwords and your fingerprint is a much better password, like compared to, you know, admin one, two, three, or your daughter's name or something like that. Your fingerprint is a significantly stronger password. It is harder to spoof. It is harder to, to steal and crack. Now the drawback that I believe we mentioned a few times is if that does somehow get stolen and cracked, that can't be changed a password can always be changed a fingerprint and to my knowledge this has not yet been done but i have no doubt that it's on the way let's say attackers find a way to steal the hash of your fingerprint and find a way to like the same way that you can figure out a password from the hash you can reverse the fingerprint and now they have your fingerprint to sign into stuff i don't know it's just it's it's risky but at the same time i do applaud the fact that we are acknowledging that passwords suck and unfortunately people are not taking advantage of password managers. So, you know, they're trying to find a solution. Is this the right one? I don't know, but at least people are trying to find a solution. Okay, so this next story you guys have probably seen in the headlines, uh, ExpressVPN was bought out by a company called Cape Technologies. Cape Technologies is a UK-based company that used to be known as Crossrider, and they did a lot of um, what's called adware. They would they basically created a lot of programs and web plugins, browser plugins, and things like that that were designed to serve ads, and uh, that's how they made their revenue. Well, in 2018, they rebranded as Cape, and they said they put all that stuff behind them, and Cape now focuses on cybersecurity. So in the past, they have acquired CyberGhost, ZenMate, and PIA. They have just recently, this week, acquired ExpressVPN for $936 million USD, and that brings them to a total of 6 million subscribers. Henry, did you have any thoughts on this one you wanted to share? Yeah, um... Well, first, I think it's pretty alarming because the main thing is the, the current owners of ExpressVPN actually have ties to U.S. intelligence. And that story happened to drop around the same time as Cape Technologies, which is kind of bearing that story a little bit. Either way, all these details put together, it really seems like Express <laughs> isn't looking too hot right now. Um, so if you're a current ExpressVPN subscriber, it's probably time to start looking for a different VPN. Or if you're looking for a new one, just try to avoid these Cape-owned services. It's already been kind of sketchy that Cape's picking up all these VPNs, but things are starting to look even more sketchy with the recent Express stuff. And all, all our tools are going to update this soon. Once uh, I get around to it, things are kind of busy back here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. As far as I know, Cape hasn't really done anything shady, but just that, man, that history is just very unsettling. It is. I think the U.S. intelligence stuff is really the big part of it because there, there's a lot of weird ties going on. That's all I'm going to say. It, it's really weird. The, the U.S. intelligence stuff really ties in nicely with some other things going on in the world. 
I don't know. I just, I, I personally would not trust Express after hearing some of this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to read more about that for sure. Cause I didn't know anything about that until you put it in the show notes. So I'm definitely going to read more about that. Yeah. You should, you should stuff. read into it. It's pretty, it's pretty sketchy. <laughs> I will. Our next story is going to stay in the UK with a company called Bounty. And this story comes from Privacy International, and it's titled How a Company Illegally Exploited the Data of 14 Million Mothers and Babies, um, which I guess explains why I've never heard of this service before, because I am neither a mother nor a UK resident. But there's a company in the UK called Bounty, and they market themselves as an information service for pregnant women and new mothers. Prior to the pandemic, they were known for giving out free samples of baby products and also approaching mothers in the, um, the maternity wards and offering them, you know, like photo shoots and stuff like that. Bounty used a lot of these tactics as a front for collecting information, including name, date of birth, gender for both the mother and the child, name, date of birth, gender, and then for the mother, address, email address, and if it was the mother's first birth. Back in 2019, Bounty was fined 400,000 euros for illegally sharing data that they collected with data brokers. They said in their statement that they regretted sharing, quote unquote, some personal data with, quote, a small number of companies, unquote, by which they, of course, meant over 14 million individuals with 39 companies. The court ruling only named the four largest of those, which are some names some of you may recognize, Equifax, Axiom, Indicia, Indicia, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Sky. And of course, this was done without uh, telling the mothers anything about this. So Privacy International is just trying to raise awareness of this story and remind mothers that unfortunately they are a hot demographic to be targeting when it comes to data and especially because you know their kids if you can start building that profile now maybe you can't use it until they turn 18 but once they do you got two decades worth of data to fall back on and it's pretty bad and last but not least doordash is suing the city of new york over a customer data law this is um, not what I expected. So New York City is requiring food delivery companies like DoorDash to share customer data with the restaurants. DoorDash says that this quote, violates customer privacy and would let customers free ride on data that they would not demand in person, which is kind of true. When I go to a restaurant, you know, they don't typically ask me for my name and my email address and things like that. And that's what the data in question includes. Data includes names, phone numbers, email addresses, and delivery address. So DoorDash is pushing off, pushing back on this. They're calling it a shocking and invasive intrusion of customer privacy. That's kind of all we have at this point in time. We will keep you updated if anything develops or if we hear an outcome for this case. With that, we will move into research. So we're starting off with a, a story that probably does not directly impact most listeners, but there is a moral that matters. And uh, this was a pretty big story that made the rounds, so it's worth talking about. The headline of this article says, Secret Agent Exposes Azure Customers to Unauthorized Code Execution. Last week, I talked about Microsoft Azure. It's a uh, virtual containerization software so that you can fit multiple different programs on a single server. Researchers at a company called Wiz discovered what they dibbed oh my god or oh my god I, I don't know how to pronounce that this is an attack that is being now it is being exploited in the wild at the time it was not but of course this is always how it goes once you disclose something they try to get as many people as possible to update but sometimes you can't and now you know the attackers start attacking the people who have not updated so i'll get to that in a second let me quote the article when customers set up a linux virtual machine in their cloud the omi agent is automatically deployed without their knowledge when they enable certain azure services Unless a patch is applied, attackers can easily explore these four vulnerabilities to escalate power to root privileges and remotely execute malicious code, for instance, encrypting files for ransom." Unquote. So basically, when customers set up a virtual machine with Azure, if they enable certain features, then there's this other service that gets deployed and customers don't know it's there, so they don't know to 
patch it. A fix for these, these vulnerabilities has now come out. And like I said, they've tried to push it out to as many people as possible, but not everybody got the moral, but not everybody got the update. So the moral is that updates matter. That is the, the story this week. That's the theme. Updates matter. Keep your stuff updated. Again, mostly gone are the days where updates are going to break your programs or cause things to not work right. For the most part, that's a thing of the past. This also, I don't know why this popped into my head when I was reading this story. One of the things that came to mind for me was to stop using forks that don't get updates. For example, Firefox. There's a lot of different forks of Firefox out there. And I get that. Mozilla is not my favorite company in the world. And I'm not necessarily saying don't use a fork. But if you're going to use a fork, make sure it's a fork that gets regularly updated because some of these forks that people recommend don't get updated regularly. Privacy and security are not binary things. They go hand in hand. Don't make privacy such a priority that security falls by the wayside. And for 99% of us watching this, that means getting your updates. Don't be so hardcore about your privacy that you say, I'm never going to get updates. Those updates often matter and they include really important security fixes like this. Yes, if you know how to only get the security updates and leave out all the cosmetic feature crap, go for it. I'm totally okay with that. But don't just never update. At very least, know what updates are out there, know what they're for, and know how to get them when they're security updates because they do matter. Our next story, this is the sci-fi one that I was excited to share. A single laser fired through a keyhole can expose everything inside of room. So this is a technique called non-line of sight imaging, which is not a new technique, but this particular study is a huge improvement on it. The basic idea is that you shoot a laser, and, and this is in just general NLOS imaging, you shoot a laser and it bounces around as light does, and eventually it returns to the camera. And the camera does a whole bunch of complex mathematics stuff that goes way over my head because I literally can screw up two plus two. And it calculates the amount of time that the laser took to return to the camera and it builds an image. Now, it can only build a low resolution depth map. Think like the shadows after the nuclear bombing at Hiroshima. There were, you know, shadows where people's images stop the radiation and you can see them in the, the sidewalks and the sides of buildings and stuff like that. It's kind of similar to that. It can't give you any details, but it can tell you this shape is there. So this new technique is called keyhole imaging. So this new technique, which they're calling the keyhole imaging technique, is pretty much the same, except that it works in way smaller spaces, as small as a keyhole. Previously, NLOS techniques required much, much larger reflective services. It didn't really specify, but from the sound of it, I'd say like a couple feet at least. The article also notes that we are now living in an age of AI technology, which can be paired with this to make more educated guesses on exactly what's in the room. So even though the laser may only be able to return a basic depth map, AI can be paired with the laser to say, hmm, I think that's a plant or I think that's a dog or, you know, whatever. I know this isn't really a digital privacy thing, but I do want to take this opportunity real quick to let you know that standard consumer locks are absolute trash. Uh, I know how to pick locks. It's totally legal. I learned it in five minutes on YouTube and a lock picking kit is $15 at Walmart. The first time I picked my front door, I did it in literally less than a second and it happened so fast that it took me a minute to realize that I had successfully done it. In my opinion, this just kind of raises the concern about standard locks. They're already pretty bad and pretty terrible. So maybe you should consider definitely not like a smart lock. Don't get anything that's networked, but you know, maybe like an NFC or a, a keypad or maybe even biometric, like uh, the, the traditional lock and key is absolutely terrible. So this is just one more reason that maybe we should as a society be looking to get away from that. 
This next research paper is a really short one, but it's really interesting. Researchers have baked malware protection directly into solid state drives. I'm going to quote the article. The method degrades performance slightly to the tune of a 17% latency performance decrease and a maximum of 8% lower throughput, unquote. Solid states are already pretty freaking quick. So that's really not a, a huge thing. I, th I mean, 17% is a little high, but I think for most of us, unless we're like professional gamers, it's probably not really a big deal. And the cool thing is it can be used to detect and thwart ransomware. It basically just watches what you do and I guess kind of learns what you do and just learns to recognize anything out of the ordinary or anything that you did not instigate. So if a remote attacker launches malware, then it knows that didn't come from you and it can stop it. So really, really cool. And we will see what comes out of that because they're trying to take this technology to the mainstream and bring it to various manufacturers. We'll see what happens. An annual study from IBM found that two thirds of attacks could be mitigated by having better configurations. This ranges from proper credential requirements, like, you know, having a password be a certain length, to patching systems routinely and more. This is probably a no duh for a lot of people in a lot of the stories that we cover. They also found that 50% of recent breaches are due to quote unquote shadow IT, which are apps and services that are not managed or monitored by the IT team for a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't know about them. Maybe they're personal devices, uh, you know, any number of reasons. I think this is a really interesting study for our listeners, because even if you're not in charge of an IT department, there are things that IT departments use that you can also use. For example, the obvious good passwords, multi-factor authentication, using a firewall. Uh, principle of least privilege. This is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but for example, when you set up a Windows machine, by default, you are an administrative user. 99% of the time, for most people, you can make a second account that is a standard user and not an admin, and that way, whenever any program tries to install, it'll pop up and require your password. Now, admittedly, that is a little annoying, and depending on the nature of your work, it's not only inconvenient, but it's like so inconvenient that it becomes prohibitive. But for most of us, it's really cool because that means that almost any malware that tries to run on your computer is going to pop up with a password first. And you can be like, wait, no, I didn't authorize that. Go away. So, um, yeah, these, a lot of these things, even though we're not it managers can still be helpful to us in our day-to-day -day lives. And our last piece of research on the topic of gaming and stuff like that, HP Omen Gaming Hub Privilege Escalation Bug Hits Millions of Gaming Devices. So HP Omens, HP is a computer manufacturer if you don't know, and Omens are a popular gaming computer. I believe they're laptops. They come with the HP Omen Gaming Hub, which is a software that can be used to do things like upgrade the drivers and optimize performance. These types of softwares are actually really common with a lot of processors and graphics cards. Uh, I've had one for the last two or three laptops I've had. I mean, they're whatever. I'm not crazy about them, but I, it's, I, I like to keep my stuff updated, so it works. Although now I'm going to be reconsidering that because researchers at Sentinel-1 found a vulnerability in the HP Omen Gaming Hub that allowed privilege escalation all the way to the kernel level. So that's, uh, if I understand that correctly, that's like below the operating system in terms of foundation. Like that's it, as far down as you can get. Very, very critical. Like once you're at that level, you can do literally anything. So the vulnerability existed in quote, code partially copied from an open source driver, unquote. And thankfully it has since been patched. So again, the importance of those updates, but also we mentioned this from time to time, open source does not automatically mean better or more secure. So we like open source, we are fans of open source, but you just gotta remember, it's not a silver bullet. 
And with that, let's move into politics. Our first story is going to start with U.S. President Biden, who is hiring a quote-unquote privacy hawk to the FTC. Biden has nominated Alvaro Bedoya to join the Federal Trade Commission. For those who don't know, the FTC is an organization here in the U.S. that is supposed to oversee consumer rights, regulate companies in the U.S., and just basically generally make sure that companies are not screwing over their customers. Bedoya is a founding director of the Georgetown University Center on Privacy and Technology. He has previously worked on a Senate Judiciary Privacy Subcommittee on issues like regulating mobile location data and facial recognition and reforming the NSA's USA Freedom Act. So yeah, go ahead and look this guy up. He's got a really good track record of um, trying to regulate privacy and data and keep surveillance in check. And if he gets selected, I, I think this would be a good win for privacy in the US. Unfortunately, our next story is not a privacy win. The U.S. court has upheld the dismissal of a lawsuit against the NSA. So in 2013, many of us are aware of Edward Snowden. One of the programs he revealed is called Upstream, which is, to put it in short, it's how the NSA collects data while it is in transit over the backbone of the internet. Since this program was revealed back in 2013, Wikimedia, who is the owner of Wikipedia and other such similar organizations, they have been trying to sue the NSA over this program. They're claiming that it... Uh, violates the First and set Fourth Amendment and um, is just generally unconstitutional. And unfortunately, the courts have, they dismissed it the first time, so Wikimedia appealed that decision, and this may have happened multiple times, I'm not sure, but this is, for the final time, it has been dismissed. So they can't appeal this anymore, but... They, you know, Wikimedia is, of course, looking into maybe other ways that they can go about this. It's a whole thing. I'm not going to go into how the U.S. law structure works, but basically this is a huge blow. And the thing that's really frustrating is the courts dismiss this on the grounds that an investigation would jeopardize state secrets. It's, I believe it was called the state secret exception or something like that. Basically, um, if you even look in this direction, it could cause national security problems. And I don't know. I'm not going to editorialize, but yeah, it's just... It's sad. I'm, I'm sad that the courts took that opinion. Okay, let's move down to the state level where we've actually got a number of great stories. First up, Alabama has dropped a lawsuit challenging the census privacy method. The state of Alabama on Thursday asked to dismiss its lawsuit challenging the U.S. Census Bureau's use of a controversial statistical method aimed at keeping people's data private in the numbers used for redrawing congressional and legislative districts. Again, this, there's a whole lot of U.S. stuff that goes into this if you're not a U.S. citizen, but basically our districts and the number of representatives we have are determined by our, our population and our population density and stuff like that. So the census is a really big deal because it determines, you know, how many representatives you get and where the districts are and stuff like that. I'm going to quote the article again. Differential privacy, which is the controversial method they mentioned, adds intentional errors to the data to obscure the identity of any given participant in the census while still providing statistically valid information. Keep in mind, these are vastly oversimplified explanations. I do not understand how differential privacy works, but it is supposed to be uh, better protection for the voters, and it's supposed to make it harder to de-anonymize them, and, but it's still supposed to be accurate in theory. So uh, I guess Alabama has finally been sufficiently convinced that this is okay and they're going to let it move forward. Although, according to the article, they're still not exactly thrilled about it, but they are going to let it happen. Our next story moves to a city in Minnesota called Mound, 
A man named Henry Harrington, who was 37 years old, formerly worked at Ascension Point Recovery Services, a Minnesota-based estate and debt recovery company. He sued and won for $65,000 after he was fired for refusing to submit his finger for a background check. I, I think this is a great outcome because it's important to note, this guy said he agreed to the background check. He didn't have an issue with the background check. He just didn't want the fingerprint part. And it is totally possible to do a background check without a fingerprint, but the company just decided to fire him instead. So he sued them over that and he won. He claimed that the fingerprint process violated his sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, your mileage may vary on that one, but overall, I just, I think that's great that he was able to successfully fight that. And our next privacy win comes from Colorado Springs, where police erected a camera on a telephone pole in order to surveil a suspect's backyard. They had a telephone pole that was overlooking the backyard, went up there, stuck a camera on it. They reasoned that this was acceptable because the property was visible through a variety of means, not just a telephone pole, but there were gaps in the fence, is a six foot fence, by the way, so clearly he didn't want people looking in, but there were gaps in the fence and there was even an apartment building next door that could see his backyard. So the police were like, hey man, public, you know, we can see it. Fortunately, the court disagreed and they said you monitored him 24 seven for an extended period of time so no, this was not constitutional. You had to go get a warrant. So next time, go get a warrant. Our next story is a bit of a read. It's from the Brennan Center, which is a nonprofit law and public policy institute. A few years ago, they requested more information about the LAPD, that's Los Angeles, the LAPD's use of social media surveillance. So after a couple years of getting the runaround and eventually Brennan just got fed up and sued the LAPD, they finally received over 10,000 documents. This article is basically a summary of all those documents. They've been organized based on topic and each, each section they give like a summary of what's in the documents. Unfortunately, I found this article last minute, so I, I didn't read it in depth. I did skim it and try to read it as best I could. I didn't see anything that really jumped out at me in the sense that like, we've covered most of this either from, you know, LAPD or other police departments or research. So I don't think there's any kind of like major new thing. However, I think this article is worth reading. I know most of us probably don't have time to read all 10,000 pages, but I do think this page is worth reading and I will go back and read it after this in depth because it, it really gives you a good idea of the comprehensive nature of the electronic surveillance that police are using these days. And it goes into, like I said, it goes over every program they use and all the, the different techniques and where they have and haven't talked about policy and how it can be used and the oversights. And it's just, it's very in-depth and uh, it's probably about, I guess like a 20, 30 minute read, depending on how fast you read, but I definitely encourage you to make time. Okay, let's go abroad. Let's start in England, where England has dropped plans for a vaccine passport. Earlier this year, they had planned to require the passport for pretty much everything, access into nightclubs, large events. Sajid Javid said that the plan has been staved off, but is being, quote, kept in reserve should it be needed. So there's a lot of pressure. They kind of back down. They're like, okay, we're not saying we're going to get rid of it, but we'll just keep it on the back burner. So it was canceled amid fears that it could have led to clubs facing discrimination lawsuits, among other concerns. And it should be noted, it should be noted that Javid said that one reason the government was shelving the idea is because they already have other measures like high vaccination rates, testing, quote unquote, surveillance and new treatment methods. So he basically straight up admitted, he's like, yeah, we already have surveillance. So I guess we probably don't need this too. For some reason, I'm always amused when government officials just own up to surveillance. I don't know why. 
All right, let's go over to Ireland, who is being accused of failing to enforce EU law. Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner is accused of leaving 98% of the country's 164 significant complaints against big tech unresolved. I did the math, that's about 100 to 161 unresolved complaints. And those are just the significant ones. For context, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties notes that Spain has a smaller budget than Ireland for data protection, but still produces 10 times as many results. So Ireland is really dropping the ball pretty hard on this. It's gotten so bad that the Irish Parliament has called for a reform of the commissioner's office, saying that it, quote, fears that citizens' fundamental rights are in peril. Unquote. It's bad when the government is telling you that your rights are in danger and you need to shape up. They did do one thing right, though. Ireland has raised concerns over Facebook smart glasses. And I mentioned this last week. We talked about how Facebook has these new glasses out and they are supposed to have a little white LED that lights up to let people know they're being recorded. Ireland is now asking Facebook to prove that these LEDs are sufficient. They're basically saying, I don't know if this is going to be enough to protect people's privacy. Come and convince us that it is. Given their track record, I'm sure they'll be easily convinced. But... Hey, it, you know, it's something. And I'm also amused because I, I brought up the same concern last week. Let's head to Australia, where the Australian government has begun work on a digital vaccine passport for international travel. England ditched it and Australia picked it up. So they have announced that Accenture will build the tech, which that name rings a bell, but I can't think why. The digital passenger declaration will replace, it's basically just a digitized version of what they're already doing. Uh, right now they have physical cards and a COVID-19 Australian travel declaration web form. This new form will replace those and will link with the QR code vaccination certificate that is set to be introduced later this month and capture essential information up to 72 hours prior to a person boarding a plane. The goal of this program is to reduce fraudulent vaccine certificates. So they're hoping that by digitizing it, it'll be easier to validate vaccine information and testing and stuff like that and therefore can replace the physical cards that can be more easily forged. Forger. Meanwhile, in New South Wales specifically, which is a state in Australia, they are rolling out a trial for a geolocation and facial recognition app for quarantine. We talked about something similar to this. Australia, uh, South Australia, I believe it was, has a quarantine app that requires you to periodically take selfies and prove that you're at home. So when you come back from international travel, you stay at home for two weeks and randomly they will send you notifications that say, hey, go ahead and check in and you have 15 minutes to take a selfie and check in. New South Wales is now testing a similar app. They will require geolocation and facial recognition and it also has a testing schedule and symptom checker and will be supplemented with random in-person checks. Last but not least, we will head to China, where China is using an anti-fraud app to track who visits overseas financial news sites. I'm going to quote the article. Chinese police are using a new anti-fraud app installed on more than 200 million mobile phones to identify and question people who have viewed overseas financial news sites, unquote. So the app was launched in March by the Public Security Ministry's National Anti-Fraud Center and blocks suspicious phone calls and reports malware. So this is supposed to be like you know, blocking the robocalls and reporting any suspicious text messages, but they are abusing it. The government originally recommended it, but many government agencies made it mandatory for their employees. So uh, again, 200 million mobile phones, a lot of people are using this app. In one story, a user in Shanghai was questioned by police after visiting a US financial news service. They asked if he had any contacts abroad and regularly visited overseas news site. He did make a point of saying that he felt like they were genuinely concerned about like malware and fraud. They weren't like trying to bully him. They were just like, are you good? You didn't pick up any like malware or but it's it's still just unsettling to know that they're watching you and if you visit a website they don't like they'll come and visit you yeah i mean it's it's china i don't know what we're expecting but with that let's move into our free and open source news section random interruption from henry 
All right, so I did a big dumb and I forgot to include um, a pretty major story in this last week that I promised someone I would talk about. So Privacy Tools IO, which I'm sure you've heard of if you're on our channel, if you haven't, go check out their website. Um, their previous owner and the person who owned the domain, uh, they just vanished for a year. And so the team members and the people you likely know Privacy Tools IO for have decided to pretty much rebrand into a new site called Privacy Guides. And now, out of nowhere, the PTIO owner just showed up after a year, and yeah. So go check out their site in the description. Privacy Guides is definitely, like, it's good stuff. It's still, like, what we recommend. It's pretty much the same thing as PTIO, but it now has an active development and an active team behind it, and they have full control of everything, which is really cool. Um, check that out. Jonah, our community manager, is actually very heavily involved with that, so yay. Thank you so much, Henry. First up, let's talk about Mozilla. Firefox is testing out Bing as the default search engine. So this is currently being tested on 1% of the Firefox desktop user base. This would replace Google as the default search engine for fresh installs, and the test will run until January of next year. It's unclear if this is happening only for new users or if this is also going to affect existing users who have not changed the default search engine. So if you downloaded Firefox and for whatever reason decided you wanted to stick with Google search, is this gonna affect you? We don't know. Mozilla has not disclosed on why they're doing this. One theory is they are trying to see if Bing is a feasible replacement, assuming that their deal with Google doesn't get renewed. For those of you who don't know, a large, large portion of Firefox's funding comes from uh, search engine deals so right now it's google before google it was yahoo that company will pay firefox a lot of money and say make us the default search engine because most people don't change the defaults i also want to remind all listeners that you can opt out of these kinds of experiments if you go to your settings or your preferences in firefox just poke around in there i believe it's under the privacy and security tab towards the bottom it says allow firefox to install and run studies just go ahead and uncheck that and you will be opted out of these kinds of experiments our next story is about Mozilla's VPN, which uh, again, we're not huge fans of. It's basically just Mulvad with a different skin. Mozilla went ahead and hired an independent auditor to audit the security of this VPN, and they did find a high level security threat that was fixed. Uh, some people don't really care for audits. They think they're just kind of like a marketing thing. And sure, sometimes they are, but sometimes audits are legitimate and they can find serious problems before the criminals do and they can get fixed and get them addressed. So the worst case scenario is, yeah, they are just a PR move, but hopefully usually the company has spent good money to have experts come in and look at the code and find these weaknesses so they can be fixed ahead of time. Audits do matter. Our next story, all right, I'm really excited about this one. I'm not gonna lie. So there's a new app in Iran. It's called Nahoft, Nahoft. Again, I've given up trying to get the pronunciation right. It's currently Android only, but it is open source. It encrypts the first 1,000 characters of a message, so kind of limit your message, which you can then submit over any communications platform, and the recipient must, of course, also use Nehoff to decrypt it. It can also use stenography, which is where it encrypts something and embeds it in an image that is imperceptible, so you can send an image with the encrypted message in it, which somebody else can decrypt, and it even works offline, which is critical in Iran because Iran frequently orders internet blackouts. So this is a really cool new app that Android users can download. Uh, he even points out, he's like, you can fire this up on your phone during a blackout, type in the message, copy it down and send it via mail, regular mail, or you can call your friend and say the encrypted message and they can write it down and decrypt it. Like it's, it's so cool. It works independent 
of you know communication infrastructure so because it's independent you can send it over telegram whatsapp signal for that extra encryption like it specifically avoids keywords that might get your communication flagged and put you on a list it's it's a really genius app it unfortunately has not been audited but that's just because you know this this guy just made it himself like there's no company behind this so yeah if you're a developer who who speaks farsi please help this guy out and go like look into the project and offer your support and i think this is amazing this is super super cool all right, and our last FOSS story is an update to last week's story. We talked about how there were some critical vulnerability fixes coming to Matrix. We now have more details on what those were. I'm going to go ahead and quote the article. In certain circumstances, it may be possible to trick vulnerable clients into disclosing encryption keys for messages previously sent by that client to user accounts later compromised by an attacker, unquote. The interesting thing about this is that this attack could have been performed by malicious server. So if the owner of the server that you were registered on was a dirtbag, they could have used this attack to decrypt your messages and read your messages. So remember, even with these decentralized services, you still have to trust the server. With Matrix, with XMPP, with any of these services, you can self-host if you have that capability. Not everyone does. So when you're trusting someone, remember that just like Facebook, Google, etc., you're trusting them with your data. And that's why we don't use Facebook and Google and all that is because we don't trust them with our data. So don't trade one crappy service for another. Make sure you trust the people that are running your server. <laughs> and uh, Henry put here in the notes, stay up to date. How many times has this come up today? Cause like I said, we talked about this last week. Hey, there's an update coming, be ready roll it out, fix it. He said, I don't want to hear another updates bad. Like I've said a couple times now, you know, updates, they don't typically break things anymore. I know that was a real problem in the past. It still happens sometimes, but it's very rare and it's usually not hard to fix. So stay up to date, stay up to date, stay up to date. And if you're curious, if your matrix client was affected, they do have a detailed list of who was affected, how they were affected, and if it's been fixed. And with that, let's move into our Misfits section. We're going to start off with Krebs on Security. Krebs on Security is a really popular cybersecurity blog run by cybersecurity expert Brian Krebs. I, I follow them myself, actually. It's one of my news sources. This week, they were briefly knocked offline by a DDoS attack, like very briefly, like only for a couple hours. So this is just kind of a really big story, and I, I think the takeaway for listeners is it can happen to anyone. Honestly, Brian Krebs doesn't really do or say anything controversial. He just reports on stories. He's like, hey, this is happening. Here's the news. You know, he's very fact-based, and even he got attacked. So, you know, just be careful. Could happen to anyone. Our next story is a little more disappointing. The headline says a horrifying new AI app swaps women into porn videos with a click. Since day one, deepfakes have primarily been used to create non-consensual porn. Uh, according to this article, 90 to 95% of all deepfakes, according to estimates, are porn, you know, made of women, celebrities, women on the street, whatever. And 90% of that 90 to 90, 90 to 95%, 90% of that is women specifically. There's some that are men, but it's mostly women. Unfortunately, this is becoming more of a problem because, you know, it used to be something that required programming, but now people are making a lot of easy to use one click tools where you click a button, you upload a picture and you know, these, these tools just keep popping up. You know, as soon as we shut them down, they pop back up and they're just, they're so hard to keep down. So this article tells the story of a site. They called it why, because they didn't want to drive traffic to it. Of course, this site had 6.7 million visits last month alone. That's wild. 
what makes Y unique and worth writing a whole article about is that this site was dedicated specifically to making deep fake porn. Like a lot of these other sites are a little more subtle about it, but this one was specifically like, nope, this is what we're here for. Take, take a picture of your female friends and upload. For those who don't know, one of the things that makes deep fake porn such a problem and like revenge porn as well is that they are so hard to take down from the internet. It is extremely difficult to get these websites to comply because you know they're getting revenue from that they're getting ads and they're getting visitors so they want you to like verify that it's you and like provide a good reason for why you should take it down and why this wasn't consensual and blah 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 blah. And it's just it's a huge pain in in the ass and like if you read any of michael basil's books he talks about it in his books of how like he's had several clients that he's had to go through some really creative jumps to get these things taken down because they're hard. So fortunately, the article says that since the article posted, Y has shut down, but of course more will spring up. They always do. I think this story is a really good example of why we encourage people to be careful about sharing images of yourselves on the internet. I know we sound kind of crazy when we talk about like not posting pictures on Facebook and stuff. And I don't know if we're necessarily saying don't ever, ever do it, but definitely be aware that there is a risk. No, no matter how crazy it sounds, it happens. You know, you could end up online in something you never did eating an entire tube of mayonnaise. Yeah, man, it's just be careful out there. All right. We do have a a quick bright spot. The Australian Cybersecurity Center has reported that total cybersecurity incidents are down 28% from last year. Overall incidents have dropped, and that's a good thing. They also say that none of the reported incidents qualified in the top two of their six-tier incident grading categories. So uh, none of the incidents were the top two severity categories. There was a rise in category four, which is, quote, low-level malicious activities such as targeted reconnaissance, phishing, or non-sensitive data loss, unquote. The total amount of financial loss also rose 15%, and the average loss rose 54%. They also described supply chain attacks like uh, the Microsoft Exchange and SolarWinds as, quote, the new norm. So total incidents are down, although they are getting a little bit more devastating, which is kind of sad. At least incidents are down, so that's good. Our next story is about the evolution of crime. Ransomware gangs are threatening to wipe the decryption key if a negotiator is hired. This is specifically a ransomware gang called Grief. Understandably, ransomware gangs do not like negotiators because, you know, a good negotiator will lower the cost, it'll drag out the process. Ransomware gangs just want to get paid a lot and they want to get paid quick. So Grief is making the ultimatum that if a victim hires a negotiator, they're just going to wipe the key. You'll never get your data back. They're also hoping to avoid having the victims realize that the U.S. has imposed sanctions. If the victim pays, the U.S. government will impose sanctions and restrictions and limits and fines on them. So they'll kind of get screwed twice. A lot of people don't know this. Like, I actually didn't know that that was a thing until I read this article. I missed that memo somehow. But yeah, so they're, they're hoping that if they tell people not to get a negotiator involved, they'll be more likely to pay up because they won't, you know, as soon as a negotiator gets involved, he's going to go, by the way, if you pay, you're going to get sanctioned by the U.S., at which point they might just say, oh, never mind, we'll take the hit. So... Yeah. And last but not least, I mentioned this all the way at the top. I didn't realize the story was so far down. The title says, it's not just you. Emergency software patches are on the rise. And the title says it all. Google's Project Zero said that in 2021, they identified 44 zero days, which was up from last year's, get this, 25, almost doubled in a year. So zero days and the ensuing emergency patches, like we talked about earlier with iOS 14.8, those are on the rise. So again, updates stay updated they're getting more and more important <laughs> and that was all of our news 
for this week. Whew, that was a lot. We will be sure to keep you updated if we hear anything. You know, we got some of the ongoing stories like Australia's new quarantine app, the Nahoft Messenger, and you know, just whatever else we learn. If something new comes up, we will keep you updated. We want to remind you again, join our communities. Stay updated on this stuff in real time. Talk to other people who share your passion for this stuff. Uh, trade ideas and techniques. Find out what works and what doesn't. There is absolutely no need to learn from experience every single time if someone else has already done it and they can tell you what pitfalls to watch out for. Communities, man, they are so vitally important. TechLore has Discord and Matrix. I have Matrix. We want to thank you for listening to Surveillance Report, and we are happy to know that you are trying to stay safe out there. The final thing we want to ask of you is to share the podcast around. Make sure that you are subscribed. Give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option, like Apple or YouTube, with the thumbs up. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and every time you comment, every time you share, every time you thumbs up, you are telling the algorithms that this is good content that people want, and it improves our reach. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.